0: Welcome back to the third episode of Origins and Evolution. Today we will cover the Fermi Paradox, named after Italian-American physicist Enrico Fermi, which is the current contradiction between the lack of evidence for extraterrestrial civilizations and our current estimates regarding the probability and quantity of technologically advanced extraterrestrial civilizations. Dimitar, we'll start off with you. Can you please tell us a little bit more about Enrico Fermi? Enrico
1: Fermi is one of the giants of physics He was born in Italy in 1901 and uh, did a lot of his initial very important work in nuclear physics for which he got the Nobel Prize in 1938. Uh, He left Italy uh, for good in 1938 as well and settled in the United States in Chicago where he built the first nuclear reactor and of course famously became one of the leaders of the Manhattan Project.
2: Seems to have had a good sense of humor. So, um, what's your rendering or telling of this, the Fermi paradox question?
1: Well, uh, the legend or the accounts of people who were there is that this happened in, the, in 1950 or about then during the uh, Manhattan Project. During one of the lunches, he was listening to his colleagues debating existence of other technological civilizations with atomic bombs and the ability to detect them from far away around other planetary systems back then, eating his lunch quietly and at the end of the discussion he simply stated, so why aren't they here already? Where is everybody?
0: (laughs) Where is
2: everybody? So let's take that apart a little bit. It's actually jumping many bridges ahead, so to speak. As we've discussed in our previous episodes, uh, Dimitar and I, we are optimists that there is extraterrestrial life on perhaps many planets in our galaxy and countless planets in other galaxies that we may never know about. Nonetheless, the probability for life, it's still a leap of faith, but we believe uh, that the probability of life in the universe uh, outside of uh, beyond our solar system is high. And then I, I'm always puzzled how even the good professor Enrico Fermi and, and so many others, probably all highly trained by Star Wars and Star Treks, assume there is life. They've got to be really cute E.T. aliens or maybe very threatening aliens. And that's a long stretch. So uh, I would... Begin to differentiate that a little bit and and go from very, very basic life, bacteria, archaea, uh, eukaryotic, unicellular life. Now, one could say they they have to store biological information for sure. Uh, That's an inherent part of life. It's not just a physical. It's also an information storage and computational and evolvability phenomenon. So they can sense their environment. They can adjust accordingly therefore they have computational if you like cognitive capabilities i'm always cringe a little bit when some scientists say all bacteria are cognitive they're not wrong Um, it just depends what you mean by cognitive can they process can they store and process information can they do measurements absolutely beyond cognitive and if you want to call all bacteria and all living creatures and organisms cognitive that's fine because they do compute information there is certainly a well-defined level of when certain animals reach when they become sentient when they can feel pain when they can feel pleasure and satisfaction perhaps we start to give them A higher moral status at that point in our moral philosophy when something is sentient we cut down a plant and eat it anytime we're a little bit more reluctant to kill a little mouse or even a beetle or whatever it might be so uh, sentient feeling pain feeling pleasure is the next level and from basic life three and a half to four billion years ago on this planet And let's say basic life, let's accept for the moment that it is cognitive, I'll accept that, to even sentient, which is very, very far from higher intelligence, probably took about, took more than three billion years.
1: So, Frank, uh, there is the big question then. Are we inevitable? What is your feeling about that? I mean, we both agree that we are very optimistic. Life is probably common in the galaxy but we really mean microbial life and so then the big question is are we homo sapiens inevitable what is your bet on it is it one in a million does it take always four billion years or here on the earth it just happened faster than it usually takes it's a very good question
2: and, and, and allow me to take another step back so let's say you know a billion or 500 million to a billion years ago we now have eukaryotic life we that's life with a nucleus where the, that's where the dna is probably some for old cell fusion that took us from bacteria to eukaryotic life and then we needed multicellular life and multicellular complex life i.e. larger organisms with more than a few cells stitched together perhaps in a biofilm that existed earlier, but advanced organisms, early animals, plants emerged—you know—several hundred million years ago. So three, three billion years later, they have some sentience. We agreed on that. Now, what about intelligent life? And I'm not talking about humans yet. Let me take um, plants are probably not intelligent life. There are, you know, fish—not mm, high intelligence, but—but but now you go to dolphins. Now you go to rats they can learn a maze uh, you can chimpanzees can you use tools um so that is intelligent life beyond sentient life it's not highly intelligent life it's not humans yet i will argue it's not on a on a on a gray scale yet but it's a significant evolutionary advance and and those type of intelligent animals that were quite a bit more intelligent than dinosaurs that was one of their problems right they had some basic intelligence 200 million years ago, the dinosaurs 100 million years ago, but intelligent m- mammalian life, um, and perhaps some intelligent bird life, is less than mostly less than 100 million years old, and most of it has evolved really in the last few tens of millions of lives. So it's quite a filter. It's, uh, if you look at the numbers, it's not so obvious that chimpanzees, or dolphins, or smart rats, were inevitable. And and now, really, the debate begins. I have many very intelligent scientific friends who think that it's now just a matter of grayscale. Rats can find a maze, chimpanzees use tools, whales have complex communication, that it's a continuity to human intelligence. I am really agnostic and not... I don't have any preconceived notions on that, but I think the evidence is not in support of that hypothesis or that view. That view is not wrong. I have a different opinion. I think the intelligence of human beings on Earth is a singularity and not something that is a continuous outgrowth of chimpanzee or or dolphin intelligence. And it really has to do with eusociality, something that um, Harvard biologist Wilson has explained brilliantly in in one of his books, it required humans as a differentiated society with different social roles that forced an accelerated brain-size development. That has only occurred in the last two or three billion years, during which the human brain, the cognitive and eventually emerging linguistic abilities beyond whale communication... Uh, increased dramatically in that social setting because we needed to process more than it's hot, it's cold, there is food, there is no food. We needed to decode social signals of what is Dimitar thinking? Is he approving of what I'm saying? Is he shaking his head? What does it mean? I think the step to human intelligence that inherently comes out of the social element of eusociality is another step, and look at look at the evidence on Earth. That's the only example we have, but with tens of millions of species of animals that have either lived and are extinct or that live today, there is only one truly highly intelligent animal, and that's Homo sapiens. So I don't think we're inevitable. I I, I think you highly advanced intelligence and subsequent collective social intelligence to build a civilization, to eventually have a written language, to eventually have mathematics, which is all precursors and necessities to develop a civilization, and eventually the super advanced technologies to travel to other stars and solar systems, it's a stretch. So I completely scientifically, agnostically, and without any preconceived notions it is possible that human intelligence is a singularity in the universe, in our galaxy. I could also be convinced that there might be a handful, but probably not millions of advanced civilizations. I really don't know. But this, the step from there is life, therefore there must be ET, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of steps. And by the statistics of our planet, we're a very curious singularity 4 billion years into life.
0: Uh, real quickly, Frank, can you just further explain eusociality a little bit and maybe give a few other examples of animals that fit that description or species that fit that description?
2: Well, eusociality is usually in shrimp and ants and termites and uh, a few blind mole rats, from what I remember. So it's only about 20 uh, species of animals that fit that description. Most of them are in the ant and termite categories. It requires a differentiation of tasks. There are, I'm not a bee expert, but there are queen bees and there are worker bees and and there's soldier ants and worker ants and and whatever that however that works in among termites, ants and bees. But those are some of the best known examples of eusocial species. And that differentiation took place at some point. There were some humans that went out and hunted for food, while others watched the all, all, all the all the youngins and protected them from bears or lions or whatever was out there, uh, built fires. Um, so the youth sociality, the differentiation in roles, it hasn't gone as far in humans that Someone who was watching the little ones couldn't also be a warrior, couldn't also forage and collect mushrooms. So it's not that extreme physical separation of roles. But the societal separation of roles and having to live in interdependent groups was a huge, required, very significant additional intelligence Now, for ants, they just didn't have the big brain. They didn't have the eyes to really develop that huge intelligence. Collectively, when you look at uh, an ant colony, it seems like a civilization. It seems like collectively a very intelligent super being, but each individual ant is probably not highly intelligent. Humans in smaller groups had to become highly intelligent, and, and they really are very exceptional and exceptionally lucky along with, you know, opposing thumbs and, and having big big enough brains to get started and having good eyesight and being removed enough from the ground so we don't get, you know, stuck in the grass and confused by all the smells and forever just live on pheromones. Um, it is a pretty unique coincidence uh, that has left via eusociality and these other things that I've rattled off that are all prerequisite have, have left us with um, only... One group of highly intelligent species, although I will add, there were other human species before, the Neanderthals. They were, of course, closely related. They were not so speciated that they couldn't intermingle, fight with each other, and probably mate with each other anymore. But there were other human species that would be categorized as, as highly intelligent, especially as in recent years we've discovered that some of the more advanced cave paintings in the in, in Spain or Portugal, I forget, at the middle of the Ice Age, like 40,000, 50,000 years ago, were not Homo sapiens cave paintings, as we all assumed, but almost certainly Neanderthal cave paintings. So they were a lot smarter, uh, and and not just brawn, uh, a lot smarter, a lot more brain than we have given them credit for so far. Nonetheless, Homo sapiens, Homo neanderthalensis, and maybe some other human species, I would take them as that combined singularity.
0: Also speaking to your previous point too, if you look at the cluster of species that are eusocial, you don't see this uh, common trend of it leading to more and more intelligent uh, species compared to their competition that, you know, throughout the rest of the insects and shrimp and whatnot that you have who are eusocial, we don't see any trend really at all that it makes the species more intelligent over time, which I I think in relation to your previous point somewhat makes sense. That's a
2: very puzzling fact. And it's one of the mysteries of evolution. If being eusocial and having good collective intelligence is such a big evolutionary advantage. And it is, I, I think I read this insects by weight. If you took all the insects in the world, there's very few ant and termite species, but there's a lot of them, so they're pretty successful evolutionarily. And I think about half the insect weight in the world is ant. are eusocial, eusocial animals, so they're successful. Why are there not a lot more eusocial species? If that was so clearly advantageous from a natural selection point of view, why are there only two dozen beats me it's, 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 a, it's, it's really very mysterious it's a, it's
1: maybe the experiment hasn't run long enough yet <laughs> yeah, but this uh, makes me uh, ask you another question Frank about this uh, let's put this in time I agree with all the hurdles you have to life the biosphere has to cross from microbes to humans or to technological civilization it's not inevitable not at all But let's put it in time. Our galaxies, give or take, 12 billion years old. And life on Earth is four, just to round things up. So basically, we can talk about something really leading to humans only in the last fraction of these four billion years. So that's your point. But let's put it now in time. One aspect of the Fermi Paradox... is is there enough time for a few hotspots of developing intelligent biospheres which then develop this amazing technological civilization that can cross the galaxy or be seen from afar. It takes time. And we know it takes more than a billion years. But 12 is not that many more, especially... 12 is when the galaxy started, but you need to get all the ducks in order. You need the chemicals, you need life to start and really proliferate on multiple spots before you can even start talking about developing it into something much bigger. So one issue is maybe the universe and the galaxy is not old enough for this. And so that would answer partially the Fermi paradox. The other uh, way, and I want to hear your opinion on that, is maybe once you reach technological civilization that is at the scale of the planet, you quite often basically self-destruct it, basically eat your own resources. And so people are thinking a lot about that, especially around Enrico Fermi's time in the 50s because of the hydrogen bomb. So I was wondering whether you have anything to say about that endurance of highly technological, yeah. biological species. We know microbes are very resilient. They, they've ruled our planet for four billion years through thick and thin. But are we? What do you think?
2: Well, it's a very good question. And if you simply look at the evidence statistically, then individuals humans individual dogs whales they all die eventually but you know what all species live prosper and become extinct eventually as well there is something that i've described in my book natural evolution 4.0 of uh that i'm calling the typical lifetime of a species yes there are horseshoe crabs and supposedly they're almost unchanged for 400 million years But that's the absolute exception. Most species that we can think of go extinct within one or two million years, maybe 10 million years, maybe they get modified a little bit and they live 20, 30 million years. But there are no species that have been around for hundreds of millions of years. And so just statistically most species won't be. They'll be, if they're, if they're unlucky, so to speak, they're a dead end in evolutionary history. The lucky ones, if you like, is they're, you know, they, they have successor species. There's further speciation, maybe into multiple species that can withstand evolving stresses. Planets change, geol- life changes, there's new opportunities, there's new threats. There are big extinctions events in between. They they kind of clear the deck, and then you have all sorts of empty evolutionary niches afterwards. And uh, and then of course you've added something. Is there something in highly intelligent species? Will they eventually do something incredibly dumb, like nuke each other, or create a density of civilization where they could fall prey to a pandemic? and be thrown back by a few thousand years or into some, probably not into some Stone Age uh, existence, Um, but, uh, you know, into some Mad Max scenario where civilization does break down. And, of course, there are real planetary threats, right? There could be some of these Earth crust fissures that are massive volcanic eruptions. We've had five of these massive extinction Events that all had to do with essentially volcano eruptions so big that it's not like a big volcano erupting the way we imagine it, but it's like fissures, you know, that might be a mile wide in the surface, uh, in, in the crust of the earth with lava pouring out and potentially wiping out countries and parts of a continent. The global heating initially and the subsequent global winters could wipe out, will wipe out species, it could wipe out a pretty resilient and smart technological species like humans. So we're far from guaranteed that we will survive for the next thousand or million or 250 million or billion years. Um, One hopes we're resilient and resourceful enough, even if horrible calamities occur, that some parts of the human species or some successor species, those may have, by the way, additional processors built in and maybe better vision built in and have mechanical exoskeletons. And and of course, we're already a successor species. I'm wearing a shirt and shoes today. I couldn't survive the Boston winters anymore without that. So we're already kind of uh, not pure humans walking around barefoot. It is not so clear that it is statistically it's likely that the human species will not survive forever and not even survive for a hundred million years, but maybe successor and hybrid species might survive. What do you think, Dimitar?
1: But th- yeah, but there is a follow-up question to you, Frank. Um, so that makes me think if, and it relates to a Fermi paradox. If uh, we are to survive, we have to overcome the threat of pandemics. Our biological nature In other words, we have to overcome the threat of toxic uh, atmospheres of cosmic catastrophes on the surface of the earth. That's, again, our biological nature. And we have to be energy conservant, because if we want to expand, we need more energy, but we are wasting a lot of energy. We have this heritage, biological heritage, which is not really suited to interstellar travel. So maybe those technological civilizations that succeed or survive are not massive. They're not uh, bulldozing their planetary systems. They are small. They have gone down in scale without reducing their capacity to compute. Expand their computing capacity and shrink their processors, if you want to use kind of computer speed. So what do you think? Maybe we don't see them because they're not as big as us.
2: Maybe they're iPhones, not mainframes anymore. Yes, uh, those are good questions. And, uh, and, and you're right, if they were and, and or will be some advanced civilizations... If they go on large imperial uh, intergalactic expansion, this might doom them themselves. They might get infections when they encounter other types of lives which might wipe them out because their immune system isn't trained. They might overextend themselves. Um, So it could be that some of these civilizations, if they exist, are very happily sitting on their version of Earth, we assume, Life is a planetary process, or maybe they had to abandon their Earth and are living on a on a colony of spaceships and keeping themselves warm. Um, obviously, a lot of scientific speculation. I I would just add, um, maybe there are all these advanced civilizations in other galaxies. I've pointed to that in 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 the second episode. We just wouldn't know. We might fundamentally never, ever, forever. We might not know. Uh, if something is in a galaxy a few million or a few billion light years away, it's fundamentally it, with presently known physics that's limiting us to the speed of light and even information exchange to the speed of light. And that's probably the physics we're going to be stuck with. We, we, there could be brilliant civilizations we would fundamentally, they would never know about us We would never know about them. If they're aggressive, that might be a good thing for them. Distance protects us. There are some people that are worried about sending us all these signals. Hey, now they know where we are. That may or may not be a good thing. But chances are they're too far away, even within our galaxy. If they're limited to the speed of light, even if their civilization didn't start 10,000 years ago, like ours did at the end of the last ice age, when we finally emerged with a collective intelligence, with written languages, math, technology, eventually the internet. We've basically had 10 or a little bit, maybe 10, 10 12,000 years of rapid collective intelligence and technology development. Other civilizations may have been at this for maybe millions of years. So they might be very, very much advanced, but does that allow them the hyperdrive technology that we all know exists from Star Wars and that you know, allows them to kind of tunnel to some other galaxy and visit. Dimitar, you're the, you're the Harvard professor of, of astronomy. If anybody knows, you must. <laughs>
1: yeah, but I was going to refer this question to Arthur C. Clarke, who once said that uh, if we ever encounter very advanced extraterrestrial technology, it will appear like magic to us. But it's an interesting statement because, and I agree with it, because if you turn it around to those advanced extraterrestrials, we would be too, too simple and too uninteresting. They've seen it already. Our technology will not be interesting to them. So they may be ignoring us.
0: There is a, an interesting point about motivation. When we go out and we explore, it's actually, you know, built into our innate wiring that it makes us uh, happier and uh, feel more meaningful. So it's not necessarily true that all other species of aliens would have the same driver motivation. Well, their evolutionary
2: instincts probably would support uh, curiosity uh, and, 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 and exploration. This is all very interesting, my sort of Boring uh, conclusion of a lot of that is well, first of all, from life to sentient to intelligent to highly intelligent to collectively intelligent technological civilization, that gets narrow very, very, very rapidly. And it's not clear. It could be that human intelligence, social intelligence could be a singularity. If there are a bunch of advanced civilizations and technologies out there, how frustrating. We all want to know about them. We might never be able to know about them, and they might never be able to know about us, even if they're in our galaxy. Possibly even if they're 99.9999% of our galaxy, could be brilliant civilizations, and they couldn't find us, and we couldn't find them, at least um, at least not with our present technology. Um, maybe they eventually could detect us, but could they travel here? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. If they're in other galaxies, it's just not knowable. It's amazing that this could exist and it may be fundamentally unknowable and we might be unknowable to them. I don't like that answer, it, but, but <laughs> I don't like it at all, but it, but, is, but, but it yeah. is realistic, right? But,
1: but this kind of brings me back to the uh, original uh, source of Fermi's statement and paradox, um, I understand that what the physicists who are working on the hydrogen bomb were discussing around the lunch table was following the logic of you have life on other planets, it becomes sentient, then it becomes intelligent, then develops technology, and comes to the point at which it asks the question, what are we made of? We are made of atoms and has the technology for the first time to realize that the atom is made of a nucleus and has the technology for the first time to split that nucleus. And when it does so, it realizes that if you put a lot of those nuclei together in a lump, it explodes Mm -hmm. and it releases a lot of energy, some of it in the form of X-rays and gamma rays. The Gamma rays are just more energetic X-rays, if you will. And they knew at the time that the gamma rays could travel across the whole universe because they're just not absorbed by anything. And they're wondering, gee, we just did this in the Nevada desert. We actually produced a flash of gamma rays, which somebody a billion years from now may detect in a different galaxy. Why couldn't we maybe detect the same back here? Then Enrico Fermi said, well, why aren't they already here? Where are they? But the irony of it was that he died before the space age. And one of the first things we did with uh, satellites orbiting the Earth, to turn them down and have gamma ray detectors telling us when the Soviet Union or China exploded a nuclear bomb, because that's the easiest way to detect it. And guess what happened? They detected gamma-ray explosions right away, but they were not coming from the surface of the Earth. They were coming from space. And it took 50 years before we realized that these flashes of gamma-rays, which occur roughly once a day, there is a flash from somewhere on the sky, are the explosions of very massive, supermassive stars, usually when they form black holes. It's kind of put together this whole uh, line of thought of what er- er- led to the Fermi paradox.
2: Well, or maybe just a really advanced civilization that happened to blow up their planet and pay attention and we thought it was another black hole forming. Of course, that was being facetious and not entirely... Um, adhering to physics standards. But um, so it's, um, it's a fascinating question. Are there other forms of intelligent lives or technological civilizations out there? There won't be all that many. It's not, wow, there is life. There's got to be advanced civilizations. That's a long stretch. That's a one in a million, one in a billion, one in 10 billion, or it may just not happen at all. Not not everything is strictly statistical. Would we ever be able to detect them? Would they ever be able to come here? Probably not, even if there was a nuclear explosion by some ill-fated civilization on some exoplanet far away in our galaxy or in another galaxy. The signal to noise from that compared to a supernova explosion is so trivial we probably couldn't detect it no. um, unless it was pretty you know in our neighborhood in that one millionth of our galaxy that we could observe reasonably well so um it remains a mystery and and uh, you know real really just um the word of caution I, i'm very optimistic there's life out there that's my belief that life is maybe almost inevitable and a universal phenomenon advanced, highly highly intelligent life and advanced civilizations will be very rare, perhaps so rare that they're undiscoverable and possibly singularities. I would like to know as much as anybody other than Dimitar, who maybe wants to know even
1: more. Um, I do, I do, Frank. (laughs) I want us to listen. I think all that you said is true, and we don't know, and there is low probability because of all the obstacles, but we don't know the answer. And it doesn't cost us very much nowadays to listen. It's mostly a matter of computing power rather than big radio telescopes, just being able to scan all the different frequencies and look for unusual signals. And so maybe one day we'll hear something, or maybe not. In the meantime, when we find... The first signatures of life around other stars that will solve at least one of those bottlenecks you were talking about. How often do we have the emergence of a biosphere? And then there will be, of course, the next question then what happens next?
2: I think this century will be the golden age of the emergence of astrobiology. There we are Decent chances we'll find extraterrestrial life, maybe on Mars, maybe on one of the large moons of Saturn or Jupiter. Uh, Maybe we'll find biosignatures on nearby exoplanets in the habitable range. I'm pretty optimistic about all of these things, and whether or not we should be worried about Fermi's paradox, uh, that I just don't know.
1: I agree. We shouldn't be worried about it, and we should forge ahead and look for extraterrestrial life the way we are planning it already. I think I agree with you, the 21st century is the century when humans will do that. We'll find life beyond Earth, whether in the solar system or on exoplanets. I personally root for the exoplanets. There are so many more of them, our chances are better there.
2: And in one of the other future episodes, we'll be talking about transhumanism and some of the things that Elon Musk and other visionaries are talking about who thinks that we need to hedge our beds and maybe have humans not only on this planet, because bad things happen to planets every once in a while. And so maybe not in the next hundred years, but in the next thousand years, it would behoove us to have a backup strategy, hopefully not a needed exit strategy of how humans eventually, how we can create extra terrestrial life, human life or a success species that can also survive catastrophic events should they ever come along. Um, but that's for another episode.
0: One other tie-in to a previous point about you know cooperative species and eusociality is even though you don't have a ton of species that fit the criteria, those species have been incredibly successful from an evolutionary point of view. And what's particularly interesting and relevant about that to this uh, specific conversation is when you're so successful from that evolutionary point of view, then you have less incentive to, to keep having these mutations or these major radical changes, perhaps. So when we look at something like chimpanzees who really weren't, who I think it's fair to say, are not as evolutionary successful, as ants or as bees or as shrimp. They needed that additional driver to keep going from not just intelligent, then to highly intelligent, then to using tools, then to, you know, homo sapiens were incredibly intelligent. And what that driver may have been might just be how insanely competitive and territorial chimpanzees are themselves. So if you were to take away this extra, I guess impetus maybe, then uh, you can see how you add even another funnel to this whole equation where it becomes so hard sometimes to reach highly intelligent life. I think that's a great description. And uh,
2: from a sociological point of view, if you look at the your homo sapiens there, we um, will, of course, um, in terms of social and civilizational intelligence and collective intelligence, the evolutionary competition has been intense. It was called commerce and, and wars. If you had the worst technology, if you didn't have the right math, if you didn't have the right bow and arrow, or, or armor, or, 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 or later on, guns and, and airplanes, you weren't going to succeed, and you were probably going to be subdued, and or, or worse, by, by your enemies. So the technological evolution has continued, and um, and of course very soon now the natural evolution will be, a very natural biological evolution will be a, a very, very slow process. It inherently is, whereas... Um, Evolving ourselves, as the famous book by Gollins and Enriquez has stated, uh, we will be evolving ourselves very rapidly. We don't necessarily know what we're doing, and there is a lot of off-target e- effects with CRISPR and with synthetic biology. And uh, But I believe we'll also take that for another episode. Um, it is inevitable anyway we will not be able to keep the genie in the bottle and unnatural human engineered evolution is is here already and will accelerate dramatically it's not like nuclear weapons that a few nations can keep them under wraps and stop from nuking each other and we're going to be going into the brave unknown because a lot of a little is known and a lot is not known but it's going to happen anyway that could lead to a civilization wiping itself out or becoming that much more resilient and creating fantastic new species and improved and healthier humans. Not for today, but something that we can talk about at another, in, in one of our next episodes.
0: Okay, great. Thank you so much for joining us for the third episode. Um, We've had a really fun time discussing the Fermi paradox. And if you go back to episode two, uh, what you'll find is it gives a kind of a good springboard and summary of a lot of the points that are discussed here in this episode. So thank you so much for joining us on Origins and Evolution. Have a great day.